Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Miss Jones Baking Company is proud to present the world's first line of microwavable organic desserts in a cup. Just add water and microwave for 30 seconds and get a fresh baked cake that's less than 200 calories. Or try their award-winning fudgy brownie in a cup. It's really good. And make a warm brownie sundae in less than a minute. Ready to taste the magic? Use code CRIME at missjones.co to get two free dessert cups with any online purchase. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about true crime, pop culture, journalism. And this week, we'll span the globe, seeking the weirdest, most dangerous travel destinations with Netflix's Dark Tourist. Then we'll talk about the podcast Bundyville, going behind the scenes of a rancher standoff with the federal government and the story behind it. Joining me to do all of that and a whole lot more is my true crime co-author, real-life husband, and favorite now-dressed co-podcaster, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Rebecca, you know, it's just so warm in Studio C. Yes. Sometimes in the... the uh, the, the Yoga loft, yoga loft above the bodega. Bodega in Bay St. Louis, yeah. Mississippi studio. Yeah. And sometimes I just, you know, I just have to peel a few things off. I'm just going to tell our listeners uh, one tip. I have not produced it's, the show don't yet. Don't say one tip. You gotta come up with a different word if you're gonna refer to it. If you don't it. typically stay beyond the ending theme music for the outtakes, uh, this might be the week to do it. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. Um, yeah, I just got some new cat information tonight. Um, another cat rescue. I'm gonna go visit tomorrow with my friend Betsy, so I'm excited about that. So my, my cat life is uh, exploding this summer. That's really great, Laura. We're all really proud of you. Hey, See? And I'm not going to take it home. I'm not going to take it home. This kitty rode, this little kitten rode cross country in a Walmart tractor trailer and was discovered in the distribution center in our local area jumping out of a truck. Huh. Wow. You really can get anything at Walmart. <laughs> I know. So, I mean, it could have come from Mississippi. Uh, I mean, it could be escaping um, Doug Evans. I don't know. Hmm. And finally, the author behind the City Trilogy novels and our resident doubting Thomas, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby Ball. Hello, Rebecca. No cat news. Oh, I am. <laughs> and, and we appreciate That's that. That's too bad, Toby. 
We really, really do appreciate that. Sorry about that. <laughs> I just want to say, before we start the program tonight, how nice it was to see you both in person last week. Uh, for our listeners, we shared a little dinner at the beach when Kevin and I were on vacation. We invited Toby and Laura to come over, and they actually did. Yeah, with their families. It was very fun. It was it very was. nice to see you guys in person. So very and nice. And we didn't, we didn't even really talk true crime. No, we didn't. We didn't. It's like normal conversations. Yeah, and we found out we have nothing to fuck in common. No. <laughs> no, what we all had in common, we were surprised that the local strip club was going to be featuring Bridget the Midget next week. <laughs> Yes. And we thought I about wasn't that surprised. You weren't just no, <laughs> totally expected it. Yeah. Every, you should probably give yeah. that some context because people don't think that you're throwing around the M word uh, without context, <laughs> Kevin. Well, this is a local gentleman's club. There's two gentlemen's clubs in the town um, where they went on vacation. No, one, not the town we went on vacation. You need to not the say The town that. over. On the way, it's, on the road to where they went on vacation, there are two. One looks like a giant coliseum and has been rebuilt, and the other looks like somebody's house. And it, it's you're like surprised, and usually the sign out front says "baked ziti eight ninety five. And I think, who the heck gets baked ziti at the strip club? A hungry horny week, guy. <laughs> when I drove by, as I've seen in years past, it says Bridget the Midget performing mm-hmm. one week. You know, and it's a thing every year. Yeah. Um, and you can Google. Bridget, and that's what she prefers to go by is Bridget the Midget. And um, yeah, so they were there one week too early. That's right. To, um, it happens visit. every year because we go the same week every year. And I just I just want to clear up like the town that we stay in is nothing like the strip club town. I'm sorry, Salisbury, Massachusetts, <laughs> but your zoning is bananas. You have to drive through this zoning bananas town with like, like it's literally an indoor firing range next to an elementary school entrance. There's the Bridget the Midget Strip Club all in a row. It's insane. And my favorite business, emergency ice. That's right. <laughs> Who has an ice emergency? Quick, this party's getting out of hand. We got to go to emergency ice. And then you cross this bridge into beautiful, like idyllic Newburyport, Massachusetts and go out to Plum Island. It's like it really is an exercise in the power of thoughtful zoning. It really is. So, um, yeah, guys, if you ever want to visit Massachusetts, I do recommend a drive through Salisbury so you could just see what we're talking about. I promise I'm not exaggerating even a little. New Hampshire has Storyland. Salisbury has Bridget the (laughs) Mayor. All right. Well, Kevin, uh, can you please read one of these for me to kick off our show? True True Crime Podcast Update. There are even more developments in the Curtis Flowers appeal related to the amazing In the Dark podcast. Laura Bricker, what is the latest that's going on there? Okay, so this is, it's it's long, so I'll try to simplify this. So um, more filings, but this is exciting. The Magnolia Bar Association, the Mississippi Center for Justice, and the Innocence Project New Orleans have filed an amicus brief to the U.S. Supreme Court in the Curtis Flowers case. And um, the reporting by In the Dark is cited all over the place in this um, brief that they filed, um, including their jury strike analysis, um, where they analyzed the percentage of, you know, black jurors that were struck by Doug Evans. So it's 40 pages. And, and for those who, the amicus brief is just basically when there's already a, you know, some sort of a lawsuit, you know, or court case filed, and there's other organizations that want to say, like, we're a friend of this case, and we have something to say about it. That's like the easiest way, I think, to explain it. So um, in this racial discrimination in the Curtis Flowers case, they argue uh, violates the 14th Amendment which affords equal protection. And then from the, it says, quote, the prosecution of Curtis Flowers demonstrates these evils. 
The state's case was built on faulty eyewitnesses, improper forensics, and false confessions from untruthful informants, known causes of wrongful convictions. Hmm. In the summary, it goes on to say that the prosecution of the case against him further divided an area um, that has already been, you know, long torn by racial conflict and that the racial composition of the six jury trials correlates with each jury's decision. Goes on to specifically name Doug Evans, um, racially discriminatory jury selection, which is consistent with his practice, and, and that his goal is to get more white jurors to get a guilty verdict despite scant evidence of guilt. Uh, quote, the plan succeeded, they said, of Doug Evans. Lots of information, pretty much everything that we heard in the dark talk about false confessions, the meager case against Curtis, um, no DNA evidence linking Curtis to the case. No um, response from anybody else yet. This just happened. But I think this is exciting because these are three organizations that really, you know, I think kind of lend more weight to seeing, you know, maybe getting attention on this more so than there is now. Right. I think it's exciting. Also, a really great moment for journalism. I mean, this is, you know, a thing that we talk about. But imagine being Madeline Barron. Imagine being somebody Parker. Imagine being Will Craft. Like, I'm Facebook friends with some of these people. Like, I know them a little bit. And we instant message and stuff like that. And you've been working on a work project. Like, Kevin, just take your job. Yeah. Imagine you've been doing something at work for, like, the last year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. I have been. It's been this podcast. <laughs> and imagine it ended up in a uh, brief submitted to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, that's something. That, like, is more meaningful than really what most of us get to do every day, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's it's awesome. And what was awesome was at the end, I'm basically, I'm re- looking at the conclusion right now, really kind of hits home what, uh, you know, we, I think, all took away from the podcast, but they, they were much more articulate than I have been about it. District Attorney Evans violated the rights of Curtis Flowers and the black veneer members excluded from the jury, but the accuracy and integrity of the jury's decision making were also casualties of Evans' discrimination. Hmm. So I thought that was a nice way of putting it. Pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. It's exciting stuff. Well, we will have to wait and see what happens. I know that our friend Colin Miller has uh, been on many amicus briefs filed in many courts. So I'm sort of familiar with the process. And you just have to sort of like hope that it makes a difference, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, it's great reporting and it, uh, it, it deserves to be seen in court and put towards the the legal part of this case. All right, Kevin, can you please read this for me? True True Crime Podcast Update! All right, uh, something I forgot to mention at the start of the show, so I'm just going to plop it in as a true crime update. All right. I, Rebecca Lavoie, received a summons for jury duty. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Toby Ball. Thoughts, strategies, ideas. I need to get juror. me on that yeah. jury. Yeah. <laughs> uh, bring a buck. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's <laughs> a lot of waiting around. Yeah. You could also bring an audiobook from Audible. <laughs> you Audible could. Has, oh, sorry. It's not really that. Uh, but as I've said many times, I thought jury duty was really interesting. So, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> However, there is a, a, a kink. Uh, I was called for September 11th, and I am traveling out of state on September 12th on a work trip. Mm-hmm. So I have to apply to defer. But when I do called, they have a process. Oh. They do. It's very impersonal. You call. It's like an automated number. But when right. I called because the automated system was down, I talked to oh. a person. This <laughs> was so embarrassing. Yeah. All my coworkers heard this call because I had yeah. to make it from my desk at work, and I was like. 
Hi, my name is Rebecca Lavoie. I just got my first summons for jury duty, and I am so excited about <laughs> it. Unfortunately, I'm going to be traveling for work, and I have to defer, but I really, really don't want it to like impede my ability to be on a jury, so what do I do? And she was like, ma'am, you just go on the website and apply for a deferral. <laughs> <laughs> Did she have a southern accent like yeah, that? She, she called Mississippi by accent. No, it was 100% a call center that I think the state oh, like, really? contracts yeah. with. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. nobody in New Hampshire wants to hear your bitching. No one wants to hear me say that I'm super excited to have been called for jury. You know, I'm just too important for this. Listen, Maybe you can find a Toby Ball to do this multiple times, but I'm a Rebecca Lavoie. I, I wrote to our HR person and I'm like, what's our policy for jury <laughs> duty? Like, what, what do I have to do? She's like... Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, don't be sorry. I'm so excited. I, of course, know, however, my chances of getting picked are like almost zero unless it's a civil case, right? I mean. Yeah. Well, yeah. I wouldn't say almost zero. Sometimes in some cases yeah. when when attorneys are doing voir dire, they actually, especially defense attorneys, and maybe Laura, back me up on this. In some cases, they actually like it when there is a lawyer or somebody who can- A journalist. Somebody who can, they believe can actually look at the law yeah. And, and, yeah. and judge it that way as opposed to just sort of the natural, I'm a civilian, I'm going to go by what I feel. Right. I, I do think, though, that journalists often just get struck automatically, um, has been historically my experience with that. So I don't know, Rebecca, you might you might not get on. I know. My, my <laughs> friend's wife who works at the Boston Globe sat on a- really important criminal case while she was a reporter at the Boston Globe. <laughs> so who knows? Who knows? And our friend who's a lawyer uh, was recently a juror. Um, I'm really excited. I really hope something comes of it. Of course, I won't be able to tell any of you while it's happening mm -hmm. if I get selected, which I probably won't. But I'm really excited to see what the process yeah. looks like. I'm probably the only person in America who's I don't, ever I'm, been this I'm thinking I don't think there's really a, a fantastic case in our county coming up around that time, but... You know, the, for one of the first things they ask the jurors is like, uh, you know, here's a list of important people in this trial, you know, the name of the prosecutor and some of the key witnesses and police officers. And they ask you, do you know any of these people? So you just be like, yes, I know him. I know her. I know her. <laughs> Don't ask me how. I just do. <laughs> it's going to be all characters from our books, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, Kevin. Uh, so, Kevin, can you please read this but with a note of somberness to your voice? True crime update. There was some unfortunate news out of Durham, North Carolina recently. One of the prosecutors from the Michael Peterson trial we saw on the staircase died unexpectedly this week. Kevin, what do we know about Frida Black? Uh, Frida Black was you know, one of the three prosecutors. She was 57 years old and she died at home. They have not disclosed the manner or cause of death, but they did say they do not believe that it was suicide or murder or suspicious in, in, in some way like that. Yeah. You may not know that after the case, uh, she ran for political office a couple of times. She ran for county attorney twice and also ran for a seat on the, the court, the mm -hmm. local court, yep. and lost all three elections. And she had... Sort a of rough a, life. Yeah, after that. We've you know, talked about it on the show before. Yeah, she had two uh, DUIs. Uh, she uh, gave up her law license. At one point, she was working at a uh, like a dry cleaners or something like that. Yeah, some mug shots online. It's yeah. really a sad story. Yeah, it, it is. It is. And you will remember her from the uh, you know from the staircase uh, from her closing argument. She called all that pornography pure tea filth. Yes. She was the villain, really, in The Staircase, uh, the earlier episodes of The Staircase, in a lot of ways. She sort of was the villain. I mean, it's easy to say she was portrayed as the villain by the filmmakers. She also said some pretty 
freaking offensive things. <laughs> and that's I remember I remember characterizing her as the villain. And but that doesn't mean that it's not obviously sad that she passed away and unexpectedly and so young. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean another way of looking at it is that her job there was to represent the state. That's right. And to be a, give a zealous prosecution. Now you can disagree with the position that the state had, but she that did his, what she uh, she did what her job was, which is to vigorously prosecute the case. That his secret bisexuality was pure filth. No, pure tea filth. Pure tea filth. Oh. Pure <laughs> tea. Yeah, I, I had to look up what that meant. Pure tea filth. What does that mean? Well, uh, from what I found out on Reddit. <laughs> It's the world's a, best source yeah, for it, accurate information. It's a common phrase in the South. It's short for pure damn filth. So it's pure D, like mm-hmm. David. Yeah. But it's been corrupted the way people say it. They say it like with a T. So it's pure T filth. It's like getting per, ganked. It's like getting ganked, yes. So you learn something. You learn something new. Well, let's move on to the next part of our podcast. I would like to talk about, not review, but just sort of a little bit broadly discuss a show that was brought to our attention that dropped on Netflix recently. It's called Dark Tourist. This is an eight-part series featuring journalist David Farrier, who wowed us, really, I think he did, Mm -hmm. with his super freaking weird documentary, Tickled. Uh, Now David, who still sounds like one of the dudes from Flight of the Concords, (laughs) is globetrotting as a dark tourist. He's experiencing some of the most bizarre, macabre, and dangerous travel destinations around. I'm into death. This is Jeffrey Dahmer. Women like bad boys. Serial killers are like definition of bad boys. Yes, they are. Pablo Escobar to us. Popeye, you kills people in this compound, right? See, si. People love it. People want to meet you. People want to talk to you. It's like taking a weird holiday, some escapism, before going back to your normal, dull existence. I sort of want to see what's going on, but I also don't want to be in the... Toby, this, the show is like a mixed bag, right? Because it is he does do this dark tourism thing where he looks at the people who are actually taking these tours and talks to people who are giving these tours. But it's also kind of like a travel show in in other respects, right? It's definitely kind of weird. And it's got like the HGTV soundtrack <laughs> going, which just adds to the strangeness. Yeah, so I, you know, we, I, I guess the, the plan was that we would each watch two. And I kind of picked the two that I thought would be the least lurid just because I wasn't like all that down for like a Jeffrey Dahmer walking tour or mm-hmm. anything like that. So the ones that I saw... Like some of it, I just, it didn't seem to really qualify as dark tourism. Mm -hmm. Um, So I watched one about the stands. So like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, all those. And uh, crazy ass Turkmenistan. (laughs) Crazy ass Turkmenistan, which uh, a a guy I know, actually an editor for one of my books, had a Fulbright to go over there and study the architecture there, which is super weird. It is. Um, (laughs) But like like when they go and they watch that rocket launch, like, that's like, how is this even dark tourism? This mm. just seems like kind of a neat thing that would be hard to get to. But, you know, I thought it was it was a little bit uneven. I thought most of the stuff was pretty interesting. So the two I watched were the one about the stands and the one about Africa. And I thought the one about the stands was a little bit stronger. The one about Africa was sort of split in between him going through a voodoo ritual mm-hmm. to become a disciple. <laughs> and it seemed a little bit... I don't know if really disrespectful is the right word, but it was kind of like, check out this weird stuff that's going on. And then he did this this thing where he went to South Africa and he did a, a tour of like one of the 
like supposedly really dangerous townships, which are basically these, you know, uh, enormous shanty towns Mm -hmm. and like found it to be like totally mellow. And then he goes and hangs out with these super racist white separatists who like live in like constant fear of the race war and Mm. And all this. And it, and it just seemed, it was a little bit too convenient, mm. like the contrasts yeah. that he showed. Yeah. The stands one I thought was kind of was, was kind of interesting in that it showed how much weirdness was left once, once the Soviet Union fell apart. And you had these places that had been under Soviet rule for a while. And then they were suddenly like free. And right. like one of them's this radioactive disaster zone. One of them's run by this complete egomaniacal freak. And the other ones where they, you know, this is the only place you can launch manned space vehicles. Hmm. Uh, what did you think about how he went to the emergency room? They gave him ketamine and then discharged <laughs> yeah. him to go to the opening ceremonies of a weird fucking martial art Olympics. <laughs> Those are the weirdest ceremon- yeah. opening ceremonies I've ever seen, yeah. Yeah. which is like saying quite a bit. <laughs> they drugged him up and sent him to this bizarre <laughs> thing. And you show the reaction shots of his face are kind of. He doesn't know whether to like be enthralled Which episode or just was that? Like, I might have to watch that one. It's called The Stands. Well, this is yeah, like F, like Chris this, this is the, this is the question I have because I've seen a lot of criticism of the show online, even like on our Facebook group. I've seen people sort of who watched the first couple episodes, which were I think more lurid mm-hmm. than later ones, and uh, just sort of talking about the look at these this fascination. I do think. This show kind of evolves because we watched some some different sections of it out of order. It really evolves into um, a profile of him in these crazy banana situations, just being totally droll and trying to keep a straight face. There was a scene in an episode, and again, it, it didn't really qualify as dark tourism, in one of the America's episodes where he goes to visit that Bananas Ark Museum. Oh yeah, <laughs> and he and and the framework is that he's saying like Noah was the first prepper, and preppers are really dark. They think Doomsday is coming, and he takes a tour of the Ark. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen the commercials for this place. It is huge. It's like the Empire State Building lying on its side. It's like a side. cruise ship, and I would. It's so much bigger than yeah. a cruise ship, though. And and he's is there. It, he's there with an alleged. Dr. So-and-so, who says she is a, like, microbiologist, and then proceeds to explain to him why there are vegetarian dinosaurs in this tableau of the (laughs) Ark that was supposed to be 4,500 years ago when dinosaurs have not existed for 65 million years. And she's just like... No, I mean, I mean, the Bible says there were dragons and and those are definitely dinosaurs. And I'm just in there and I'm like, what? And he's so earnest and likable. And he's yeah. not he's not exploiting her. He's just talking to her. See, I, I think that they missed out on the idea from that Shel Silverstein song that the unicorn wasn't able to get on the ark. And that's why there's no more unicorns today. I, I think see. they should have done the same thing. Yeah, Noah just didn't have room for the dinosaurs. So. Yes. So, so, t- so, Laura, I just want to ask you, like, what do you think of these people? I mean, let's talk about some of the darker tours, like the the, the Jeffrey yeah. Dahmer one, the yeah. the vampires in New Orleans, the, um, oh, the Kennedy one, holy bananas. Yeah. What do you think of these people who both love to go on them and then these people who love giving them? I see. I found it kind of fascinating. Um, and, I, and I did also love, you know, the way he just kind of rolled with everything like he's in New Orleans and he's he's like the fake vampire and someone's like well I know where the real vampire house is and and it was like 
oh yeah, these people are normal. They're having a birthday party. Oh, it's time to feed. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, no big deal. Um, that one was interesting because, you know, you hear, you know, that was like um, not at all what I expected to see a house full of, you know, people that are, you know, identifying as vampires. And I would have had no idea. You know, that was totally different from the people who were just getting the fake teeth. So I thought it was interesting to see not only, you know, the, the episode where he's going um, to see this, you know, like Jeffrey Dahmer walking tours and the woman that shows up to go along with him is this huge Jeffrey Dahmer fanatic who shows up with a skull in her bag. <laughs> Somehow got through TSA. Just no big deal. Yeah. I'm like, whoa. But it was it was really interesting. You know, I guess I know we are fascinated with you know, crimes, murders that are, you know, interesting cases. But this kind of took it to a whole different level. Right. Um, you know, I don't I don't carry a skull around with me. And um and then we had the Kennedy assassination tour. Oof, um that one. And and that went all over the place. I mean you have this guy driving around in his Cadillac who like won't shut up for hours. And then you have the guy that's on like the happy happy drunk tour on his little like pedal bike thing or whatever that was so it was it was just somebody dressed like jackie kennedy sitting next to actress who wasn't allowed they were doing little movie clips Mm -hmm. it was just really interesting i guess i hadn't thought about really capitalizing on some of these things in a way that would draw that many people um the el chapo episode also equally bizarre did you guys watch the El Chapo one? I did not, but I've heard a lot about the El Chapo one. What was bizarre about it? The people there love El Chapo. He created the village, but uh, his hitman is out in the woods with his bus, like like Pedro south of the border. Like it's like a destination. Like mm. like hello, welcome, taking pictures. Like all this. I mean, it was like sounds like Clark's Trading Post. That's what I mean. It was like it was like a theme park. That's what I mean. It's like you know, getting closer, five miles to go. Like you know, when you're driving down ninety five and you're going to this like destination. So that that one was just bizarre because, you know, this guy, he said how many people he killed and now he's just out in the woods taking pictures with people. Yeah. I don't know. So first of all, Laura, I just want to say you are very, very woke when you describe the house full of people drinking each other's blood as identifying as vampires. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very, very proud of you. Mm. Uh, Kevin, what were your thoughts? We got to remember David was the one who did bring us tickled. Yes. You know, about this weird sexual <laughs> fetish. And it just, it, it kept coming up with all these different things that it was going on where he kept asking, you know, like, I'm poking your back with an X Acto knife to get the blood and drink the blood. He's like, is there a sexual aspect to this yeah. for you? And even the, um, the guy in the last episode that creates like the worst. Uh, haunted house oh experience. Oh my god! I guess neither of you've seen this. Oh. Where he puts like no. the the guy puts. Uh, if you go on it, uh, he puts uh, like a you plastic. You can't describe it. You just have to see it. It's yeah. It's just you know your eyes are uh, duct taped shut and he almost drowns you. He throws you in water and knocks you oh around and and uh, so afterwards David asks him like you know is this like is there like another secret you know set of money. Money think like are you selling these videos are you making online? Videos? Yeah, <laughs> and of course he would ask that because he's like, "Hey, I've seen worse, man. <laughs> I saw people tickle each other." <laughs> no, I mean, is David? I'll just say it. I really like him. I really do. And mm-hmm. tickled made me like him. I think he's a little bit weird, and he's a little bit 
It's a little bit John Oliver-esque in so far, and Stephen Colbert-esque, like, you know, those old fake interviews he used to do with mm-hmm. uh, politicians on The Daily Show. It's a little bit like that, where he's just I never being, think he's being fake. Neither do I. Yeah. Am I, so I'm not alone? Like, yeah. he seems no, genuinely I like curious. Yeah. I f- yeah, no, I like him. I'm like, I'd, I'd go, over, I mean, I don't think I'd want to go to, like, you know, the nuclear site that he went to, but it's, it's kind of... Interest kind of quirky. Were you surprised that he was able to speak with Jeffrey Dahmer's attorney and that he brought that tourist lady with him to do so? Yeah. Is that because he, Jeffrey Dahmer's dead, right? Is that yeah. is that yeah. why? Yeah. Okay. Because I was, at first I'm like, how? Why is she talking? And then she was showing like the like actual writing, something yep. he wrote on. A, I'm like, that doesn't seem right. But I think once you're dead, I guess you lose that privilege. <laughs> So. Well, it's weird, uh, and I know there are mixed feelings about it. Um, I don't, I'm not going to ask you to give it a thumbs up or thumbs down, but like, is this a show that you would watch more of? Toby, what do you think? Uh, I, I don't plan on it. No, you're not really into it? You know, there's interesting parts to it, but you know, as a whole, I, I think about a third of it was worth watching, mm-hmm. of the stuff that I watched. Yeah. I mean, he is, you know, he's he seems like he'd be an interesting guy to hang out with mm-hmm. and stuff, and I don't think he's as smarmy or um, condescending as as some people are in these situations. He's not Borat, for sure, right? Right. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, I think the whole idea of kind of, there's a certain degree of like kind of parachuting into situations where, where you then leave. Mm-hmm. Like the whole thing in the stands where he goes to this place that's the site of all these nuclear tests and they do go to this orphanage, you know, after he goes, like, swims in a radioactive lake and, you know, some, like, sort of funny stuff about them, like, dressing up in these ridiculous outfits to not be irradiated. They go to a an orphanage where you do see these kids with terrible birth defects and, you know, probably their parents died of, you know, cancer from radiation poisoning and... uh you kind of see the effect that it has on the society. And then he like takes off and goes to the next thing. And, you know, it's not that it's not that he is necessarily responsible for doing anything about it, but it it does leave kind of a funny aftertaste that, you know, he's kind of dropping in on these things and then leaving. And these, these people are, are still there. Yeah. Laura, what do you think? Would you watch more of this show? Dark Taurus on Netflix? I would. It's a show that I kind of saying like, you know, sometimes you're like walking around, you have like HGTV on in the background or something and you're watching it, but you don't have to pay super attention unless it's something you're interested in, um, like a segment. I mean, I definitely would watch it again because it was, I liked how each episode had like a couple different places they went. Some of them I'd like, I'm not interested in this. I'll take a little break. I like the next place they're going. It's interesting. So it was, it was just really quirky. Yeah. It's funny that you should mention the HGTV thing. Both of you mentioned that because I do think Netflix is moving a little bit in this direction, creating this kind of programming, these shorter form series and the, the segment form, the, uh, you know, these like easy, relatively cheap to produce, like things that would be on basic cable. I don't know if I'll watch any more Dark Tourist, but um, as an aside, we discovered a fantastic show on Netflix last night that's produced similarly, sort of a travel show, sort of a look at people living in weird ways. It's called Amazing Interiors, which is a terrible name for a TV show. It's a show in which people live in houses that look normal from the outside, but are totally fucking bananas on the inside. (laughs) Like the one where there's a guy who has an enormous aquarium and he has to dive into it wearing a scuba suit in order to feed his stupid fish. (laughs) (laughs) And there's like one where this guy has his whole house done like a circus. Like it's, it's, but it's, it's put together really well. So I probably will watch that 
more than I will watch this. Uh-huh. More, Kevin, although I do like David Ferrier very, very much, and I would like to be his friend. What about you, Kevin? Yeah, I probably would, you know, watch some uh, again if I had the time. I think David has sort of actually kind of a light touch, and so it's more along the lines of, you know, is this topic that he's looking at, this interest, is this thing interesting? Is another one interesting? It is a learning experience for me that you know you could go to these places and that this is sort of a cottage industry where you can do, you know, have a Charles Manson dedicated YouTube channel and oh, a tour. That was so weird. The Charles Manson tour and uh, you know th- things like that. Of course, when, when you travel, you want to be comfortable, which is why you should be wearing your Tommy John cool cotton underwear. You should for Kevin. both men and women. <laughs> You know, if I'm not wearing Tommy John cool cotton underwear, I'm not wearing anything at all. We know. (laughs) (laughs) But in all seriousness, people, cool cotton isn't like ordinary cotton. It's not? No, it's not. Because the way Tommy John makes it, they have this uh, moisture wicking technology so it dries four to five times faster and that keeps you cooler you know up to two or three times cooler so it's a great uh pair of underwear to wear uh during the summertime when you know the temperatures get up and they also they never ride up they never you know start bunching and give you wedgies and things like that it's really cutting edge lightweight fabrics with patented comfort focused designs for a fit so perfect it's almost like wearing nothing at all it's Mm. the best pair you'll ever wear or it's free they give you that guarantee. Wow. Rebecca, you spent an entire paycheck on Tommy John. Not because Tommy John is expensive. No, but I because threw away all my other underwear yes. and only wear Tommy John underwear now. It's my favorite underwear. You know that. Yeah. I have yeah. a whole drawer full of them. You had to do my laundry when we got back from vacation, and you were pulling all those Tommy Johns out of the suitcase and putting them in the washer, and I was waiting next to the dryer for them to come out so I could wear them immediately. You know, you caused a real inventory problem with Tommy John. They're life-changing women's underwear. It sold out in just six weeks. Yeah. And now they had a backlog, but now they're fully back oh, in good. stock. <laughs> but you are t- partly to blame. It's my fault. Yeah, you caused a shortage there. Yeah, a I know. run on Tommy John underwear. Do you remember there was one time I put on, like, I have I have a couple pairs that are like that like, sort of dark mauve color. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, I like that color of your underwear. And I'm like, yeah, it's the only color they have left. So I had to get all, all the <laughs> pairs in this underwear. I think I, I really do think I was the one who, who bought it all out. But I'm glad they're back in stock. They're just wonderful. Yeah. So you got to hurry up and get to TommyJohn.com slash crime. Crime. And you'll get 20% off your first order. That's TommyJohn.com slash crime for 20% off. Tommy John, no adjustment needed. What else you got, Kevin? Well, it's, it's summer. And if you're sitting out with your friends, your crime writer friends, Having a little barbecue, mm-hmm. looking over the ocean, mm-hmm. and you know it's like you might not want to have that thing, you know, that's on the grill yeah. right now because it's got just too much fat wicking off of it, yeah. and you know, you might want to instead enjoy a nice smoothie from Daily Harvest. We might, because that's what you want at a barbecue. But no, you really might, because they are delicious. Yeah, uh, Deli Harvest is the su- subscription service that makes healthy eating easy with delicious plant-based foods that are ready in as little as 30 seconds. So you basically you get a cup of frozen fruits and vegetables, and you just put water in or milk. You could freeze it. You could you could heat it up. You blend, blend it. it. You know, there's really no wrong way to make your daily harvest. <laughs> there better smoothie. not be because no. I made one in a way that was different uh-huh. and amazing. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to confess what you did? Is it okay? Do you mind? I think it's okay. You think the sponsor will mind? It's non-alcoholic. So. It is. Well, I we got back from vacation. Uh, we didn't. You know, the only real food we had in the freezer was a couple of daily harvests, and it was really hot. 
and I am trying to eat better and, you know, cut back on the bad habits. And I really wanted something after dinner when I would typically have like a cocktail or dessert. So I went in the freezer and I pulled out the Daily Harvest and it was that watermelon, very light cucumber one, watermelon cucumber. And I threw it in the blender and I put in like a little bit of water and I put in a little extra ice and then I put in some agave-based margarita mix. Margarita mix, mix, yeah. (laughs) It sweetened it up. Hey, it's liquid. It adds an additional flavor. It matched. You gave me a sip and matched with the the watermelon. delicious. It tasted like a dessert. I ended up making it kind of thick and eating it with a spoon like it was sorbet. It was amazing. Yeah, so there's no wrong way to make your daily harvest. There's no wrong way. You go to daily-harvest.com and enter promo code CRIME, CRIME, and you'll get three cups free in your first box. That's promo code CRIME and three free Daily Harvest cups at daily-harvest.com. Daily-harvest.com. Moving on. The new podcast, Bundyville, takes a close look at the story behind Clive and Bundy and his anti-government movement that transfixed the nation. There's this sense that the American West is wide open country. Nothing to hear but the wind in the sagebrush. But recently, it started to sound more like this. In 2014, in Bunkerville, Nevada, Clive and Bundy and his family had their cattle rounded up by the federal government over a matter of unpaid grazing fees. To hear them tell it, what they did next was gather a posse and take those cows back. At gunpoint. Heavily armed, they forced dozens of federal agents to stand down. They'd really like to be seen as cowboys. The West has now been lost. Produced by Oregon Public Broadcasting and Long Reads, reporter Leah Satil finds that the Bundy case was more than just a dispute over grazing rights. The seeds of Bundy's discontent were sown by court cases, nuclear testing, Mormon oppression, and a religious prophecy. And while many assume that the Bundy case has concluded, Satil makes the case that it's only a matter of time before the Bundy's extreme views are responsible for more violence. We will be discussing spoilers from the Bundyville podcast. If you want our spoiler-free review, jump to the time code listed in the show notes. All right. The first thing I really want to talk about here is something that is executed in this podcast so well that is so hard to do. What's that? This podcast is almost entirely narration. There is very little tape in the whole in this podcast. There are a couple of episodes where she has a couple of interviews, a couple episodes where she goes places. It is largely a narrated podcast. I want to say like between 80 and 90 percent. I don't think it's that much, but it is heavy on narration. That is so hard to do and have it be good and have it be done well. And I really think it speaks to the strength of the writing and the reporter and her delivery of the writing and the pacing and the production that makes this work so well. What do you think, Kevin? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I don't. I, I remember there being, you know, a little more uh, other voices in the piece, but I think that it was very strong. And you've got a, a reporter here who did not parachute into this story. No, you know, she had been following it for well years now. I mean, and you know, she's able to bring that experience. Uh, to bear on the story, but also to bring herself to the podcast mm-hmm. in a way that's she does very effectively. Appropriately. And appropriately, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you that it's appropriate. That's another thing that's difficult to do. And it's something that we've criticized a lot in shows when we hear a reporter saying, 
I found myself wondering why X, mm-hmm. so I decided to do Y. It's like, we like you don't have to say that, mm-hmm. but like, she doesn't have to say that. She says it in such a way where like, there's a reason why she was wondering it because she's given us the context that she's been reporting it and like the question that comes up over and over again, and you believe her, yeah, because she's like kind of like one of the reporters of record in the story. Uh, Laura, true confession: when you first told me that we should listen to this podcast, <laughs> I thought it was about Ted Bundy. Not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> I was very happy to start listening to it and realizing it was about this very interesting story instead. Uh, what do you think of this as a topical choice for a long-form podcast in the true crime genre? Well, that, that's why I wanted to listen to this because it was something that wasn't, you know, it was like some unsolved murder case or or something like it was. But it was a case that's really kind of fascinating um, to me anyway, as I was watching this unfold, you know, several years ago on the news, but only really seeing like the news highlights. Um, so this was a great way to really get some context about the background, about what led up to this and this family and what was going on. The way that Leah tells the story as I mean, there was a couple times there was one time where she mentions like, you know, doing shots with the Mr. T impersonator and she was hung over and I was like, eh, why did she include that? But, you know, looking back at the whole podcast, really, you know, the way that she delivers a story where it is mostly her talking is almost like, you know, if you're a reporter and you're out covering a story and then you sit down with your friends to sort of debrief, it's very conversational and it's it's very relatable in terms of the way that she tells the story and, you know, disseminates the information as she's going through what she did, what she learned, what they did. Very easy to listen to. Mm. You know, what you're talking about, about her insertion of herself in those ways, I agree with you that, you know, a couple of times I was just like, well, that was an interesting choice. I found myself thinking that. Yeah. Not bad, just interesting and, you know, sometimes a little bit like unconventional. But there was one moment in the podcast that is one of my favorite moments that we've listened in a, in a podcast we've listened to in recent months. Do you remember when Leah and her producer went to the original Bundyville and they and they drive all the way out there in that Jeep and they get to that little one room schoolhouse or whatever it was. And there were all those old timey photos of the old timey Bundys on the wall and she's giving all their names. So there's a photo on the wall, a bunch of like military photos, um, military portraits. And there's uh, Dave Bundy. That's Cliven's dad. For three generations, Cliven's ancestors called this place on top of a mountain home. Oh, here we go. The three mothers of Bundyville. Ella Bundy was Abraham's wife. So that's who settled it. And then she finds the one photo and she goes, Man, look at her. Hmm. She looks pissed. She looks pissed. (laughs) (laughs) And it was so perfect because it's her. It's her real reaction. And it's, it's important, but... It was a good choice because it makes her so likable and relatable and believable in some ways, you know. Um, Toby, I'd love to know what you think. I mean, what a thing that I never would have known about had I not listened to this podcast was the origin story behind Clive and Bundy's or the alleged origin story, we should say, behind Clive and Bundy's mistrust of the government that, you know, the government was doing nuclear testing in the town next to where he grew up. And there were these fallout warnings, you know, it's not dangerous. Just stay inside during recess, kids, (laughs) uh, where people got sick and died from radiation. And we know that stuff is true. When I say alleged, I'm not saying that's not true. What I'm saying is we don't really know if that's the source of his mistrust of the government or not. What do you think of the history that that's wrapped into Bundyville and the way Leah delivers that? It's funny because I was I was thinking about that exact thing when I was watching Dark Tourists about Kazakhstan with all the 
you know, fallout babies, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I can be sympathetic to that aspect of things in that there are definitely consequences to the government being pretty blasé out of, I guess, ignorance in their atomic testing and the advice they gave to people. My issue with the whole thing doesn't really stem from that necessarily, but from it basically seems like a family of of narcissists mm. who have this sense that they they are able to, particularly with the Constitution, interpret the Constitution and what it means as, in their minds, a holy document in ways that nobody else can and that the courts don't have the authority to weigh in on. Mm-hmm. In the end, it seems like a lot of this stuff is sort of excuses to kind of ex- try to explain why they have these insane beliefs, right. basically. Right. Now, Kevin, I think that Leah does an admirable job in this podcast of she doesn't shy away from the things that are on their face, difficult and true, while still justifying the interestingness of these characters. So it is difficult to say, look at someone that is racist and has a lot of racist followers who say and do racist things and then say, but they're still interesting and I want to learn about them when the temptation would be just to be like, screw them. Like, I don't, they're not worth Mm -hmm. my time. I think she does a good job explaining why we should know them. Yeah, and it's hard to do in a hyper-politicized world that we're living in right now. It's very easy to dismiss, you know, the people who uh, who showed up to protest as being uh, all in the same bucket and I'm uh, or, or the same basket or whatever the deplorable, of deplorables. Yeah, whatever that is. It's also very easy to criticize the podcast for saying, oh, well, you've, you're critical of that. I mean, it, it, it becomes the cyclical thing. H- however, I think that she does a good job of pointing out that, that while there are people there that have you know, sort of legitimate political grievances, that a lot of these individuals, I should say a lot of it, but some of these particular individuals are maladjusted for other reasons and have demonstrated that. Yes. You know, and that there's a lot of people who went there. Uh, you know, itching for a fight that really didn't have a lot to do with grazing rights. Well, that's what's interesting is that she makes the very compelling and proven case, I think, through this podcast that that's the followers are very divorced from the not the the, because the cause the cause is like a MacGuffin. Yeah, right. Right. She doesn't make this case explicitly, but it seems like there's a lot of people who are followers looking for a leader or at the very least some direction to go. They're, she they're does marching make in the place. Case. She does make the case and that's explicitly, where, yeah. Right, and that's where someone like Bundy comes in where all of a sudden he has a cause and they're like, yep, okay, this is this is where I'm going yeah. and I'm ready to shoot somebody. She does make that case explicitly. She but says, so she that says isn't that, the most interesting thing about this, the podcast. Yeah, however, but she yeah. says they use the same techniques ISIS use, uses in recruiting people, saying that, it, you know, using the, the, the real religion versus false religion argument, using the, um, you know, calling to disenfranchised losers, basically, people who have failed in their own lives, who love uh, to be armed, who are afraid of an imaginary government plot against them. And they have done a very good job speaking in a language that resonates with that by using this... we are, and this is the most interesting thing to me, because we see this in the political debate over and over again. We are America's farmers and ranchers. And meanwhile, America's farmers and ranchers are like, no, you're not. You are not us. You don't represent us. 
but they're so good at it. Yeah. They're so good at it. Yeah. I, I actually really liked how um, people were trolling the... Uh, the, oh, the, by sending the bag of dicks to the uh, standoff? Yeah, they're saying, well, they're calling them um, y'all Kaida. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just thought, yeah, it was kind of fun. Laura, what'd you think of the part when Leah, I think in a really good move for the podcast, went to Clive and Bundy's ranch and interviewed him in his own damn living room? What'd you think? That was awesome. You know, listing along, you know, they get there, they go to the son's house first, and they're not sure if they're going to make it to see Clive and if they're going to get in. And then what what was great is the way she she clearly made note of what was around her while she was yes. out there interviewing. And she described, okay, now we're going down the road. This is where they thought the snipers were. And then we get to the, the ranch and she's like, huh, this is it. So we head inside. And I admit, it feels really surreal to be in this place that was the site of the first standoff. It feels homey. It's this tiny old house... It smells like barbecue sauce or beef jerky. The couch is made of this soft old leather, and there's a blanket with cow print draped over the back. Photos of the family and the Mormon temple are framed in rustic wood. Cliven's wife Carol is working in the kitchen. We sit down on the couch, and Cliven walks inside in a clean plaid shirt. He's just splashed water into his hair and combed it back. And he hefts this huge cardboard sign into the room with him. It says, Nevada land. Welcome and enjoy a free land by the people. So what's the story of this sign? That, to me, the description of the places where she was doing these interviews, I think bumped this whole thing up a notch in terms of really bringing you into the scene. And uh, the 66 grandkids? What do you think of the 66? That seemed like a lot what to you? What the hell? <laughs> I was like, are you kidding? And then she's like, no, there's there's three more on the way or something. I'm like, what? Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting that she prefaced it by saying that, you know, after the trial, when they, they had the mistrial and they're, they're out of jail, the, the case is over, essentially. Reporters hadn't necessarily followed up to find out what they were doing. So I thought that was very interesting that she was one. I think she had said she's one of the first reporters to go out and try to talk to him since right. all of the court case ended. That's right. Um, and that he was willing to talk, maybe more so because his son is now running for governor. So the son wanted to get some. I think she had even mentioned that, you know, maybe that's why he's talking to us, because now he needs some publicity. You know, she had clearly done so much research for her to be able to bring out the religious beliefs and how they were equating the Constitution with religion. And it was just really fascinating. And they were making up religious stuff to justify yes. their crusade, the uh, yes. false prophecy that even, you know, whatever you think about the leaders of the Mormon Church and their doctrine, which can be unconventional let's put it that way when those folks are like nope that prophecy is not a thing <laughs> um <laughs> and that was a good bit of reporting there um toby a big theme in the podcast uh is white privilege and leah lays it out there she doesn't make any bones about it she talks about what was happening contemporaneously at standing rock the many of the same issues that the government intervened in that instance with water cannons and trying to you know make the protesters uncomfortable wait them out give them these torturous awful conditions violence against the protesters and then in these bundy standoffs were so reticent to do anything you know the bundy clan was able to go get their cows back with no intervention the bundy clan you know during that instance where the man was shot at the traffic stop 
he was literally repeatedly reaching for a gun and repeatedly got so many warnings in a way that a person of color does not typically get, as we know from these standoff situations. How do you think the podcast did at handling the uh, the race aspect and the white privilege aspect of the story? I think it was good that they're upfront about it. I think it's a complicated dynamic, you know, and I don't, I mean, white privilege, I think, is the number one thing. Like, I don't know if you had a group of radical African-Americans, like, hold up somewhere or obviously Native Americans, that they would get the same deference, mm-hmm. I guess. It's a, it's a funny, like, what lesson would you learn? And part of it is, I think, like, Standing Rock, they weren't armed or threatening. Mm-hmm. They were protesting. Isn't right. that the difference instead of deference? I mean, isn't that like the practical difference is that one group, you have a a peaceful protesters who may be angry, but then you also have a group that they're all armed to the teeth and have been openly threatening to use violence. I think it has to do more more with how the government looked after these other incidents like this, like Ruby Ridge, like Waco. And these Bundys are just freaking good at beating them in court. They're good at it. But I think there's also I think there's two things. One is. You know, the government doesn't want to get into a mass firefight with American citizens. And there is in in this sort of right wing, I I say group, but movement, you know, all these martyrs Mm -hmm. who were were heavily armed and basically gave the finger to the federal government and were then killed. They talk about Randy Weaver's wife and son. And then, of course, there's a. the Branch Davidians. Timothy McVeigh, who is apparently a hero to a lot of these folks. God, it's just ridiculous. So, you know, I think that there's a bunch of factors that go into play. And and the fact that up at uh, Standing Rock, people weren't going to be shooting back. Mm -hmm. The lesson is the exact opposite of the one that you want, Mm -hmm. which is you would think that you would want to respect the peaceful protests and crack down on the threatening violence protests. Yes. But that's not, in fact, what seems to happen. And race, I I think, definitely plays a part in it. But I also think sort of the attitude of the quote-unquote protesters is another one. And it's just a lot easier to deal with people who aren't going to fire back. I I really thought another really effective thing in this podcast was the way Leah deconstructs the myth of Mm -hmm. the lost version of America that these ranchers say that they're fighting for. And she points out, for instance, that, you know, there is no economic benefit to this business that they are saying that they're losing, that they are actually not, in fact, taking care of these cattle that they're letting them roam on wireless. Many of them have been born feral. They sort of like don't even keep track of these animals that they are claiming to need these rights for, that their argument is, you know, the federal government isn't allowed to own land. I would pay the state these fees. And I'm like. No, you wouldn't. You have no way demonstrated <laughs> yeah. that you're willing to pay anyone anything. Uh, you don't think anything should be public. You should just be able to use it as as you yeah. will. Or very conveniently, I don't recognize the authority of things that go against me. Right. I'm for America and the Constitution, but I'm not for paying and the federal government. And I they do don't, for the state. And they don't the, seem yeah. to be mad at like um, all of the big agribusiness stuff. They're not mad at like Cisco and like factory farms and, you know... All the things that actually are eating away at their ability to make money as a small know, was, that, was that dairy cattle or was it beef cattle or what were they? It was beef cattle because they were talking about cattle. shipping them out and they were saying like yeah. we used to ship out a, a trailer a day and now you we know, ship like out. Those skinny feral 
cattle, like for to make stir fry. Like, oh, stir fry. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even know how many cattle they had, though. That's yeah. the part I found really because bizarre, like, it is a straw man argument. It really yeah. is. I mean, and I think the other thing she does an amazing job of is very much in the vein of what we're seeing right now in the court system. Like right now, there's a, a very interesting legal case against. Crazy ass Alex Jones Mm -hmm. brought by Sandy Hook parents suing him for defamation because he he left for a long time claim that Sandy Hook was a hoax. Now, they have been subject to violence because of things he has said. Right. They have been targeted. They've been threatened. They've had to move like a bunch of times. They're now living in a private locked gated community because of what this guy did. Mm -hmm. And the Bundys, just like Alex Jones, are saying we are not doing the violence. We're not telling people to do the violence, but they are damn well inciting the violence. And yeah. she does a very good job showing us, I think, that that is worse in many ways because they are weaponizing very much like groups like ISIS do. They are weaponizing and harnessing this discontent. It's really, really something. Um, Toby, what do you think of the fact that uh, the Bundys uh, won these court cases real quick? Where, I mean, I, I know that it happened in the news but when she sort of describes how it went down and what a bad actor the government was in court withholding evidence, lying about things. What do you think about that? I had a couple of thoughts, one of which is, you know, even though the defendants aren't sympathetic, in my view, the way a lot of other uh, defendants are and other stuff we've looked at. The government's still got to act. It's got to be a fair actor, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, that it's just bullshit. And especially for this stuff, I mean, this should be easy cases, right? Like you shouldn't be messing around with them. And then the second thing is, it seems as though there are two things going on, and one is like an appeal to facts, and the other one is an appeal to a sense of self that the Bundys put forward in these districts where they, even if the people can't personally identify with the lifestyle that the Bundys are sort of, it's not an accurate picture, but they're sort of painting this picture of, of rural of rural life under assault. If you're laying out a bunch of like sort of facts on one side and the other side is telling an emotionally uh, resonant story I just think that that was a smart strategy mm. on their part, and it obviously worked. Yeah. To a certain extent, it's like you would hope that the jurors would be like focused on the facts and what actually happened rather than what seemed to me to be mostly a justification yeah. of why we did this. So when you're on a jury, for instance, Rebecca. Yes. Yeah, take notes, Rebecca. Stick to the facts. Well, I'm also going to hope the state doesn't lie and withhold evidence yeah. from the jury. That'd be I nice. think they underestimated them. I, I really think the state got sloppy because they underestimated. They see like, oh, here's these ranchers, like not realizing pro that. Se. Yeah, pro se. Pro se ranchers, ranchers yeah. were smarter than they thought they were. I mean, I think that they underestimated the ability of these people. And I think that goes to what you were talking about before with the, the family sort of ser- serving as this lightning rod for all the other discontented people to rally around, whether they are rallying for the same cause or another anti-government cause, I think they were underestimated. And I think they still are. Because you're looking at, you know, where this is going next. And it seems like there's a whole other family that could be the next place that something like this happens. And they they might be very disconnected from the outcome of the cause that they attract, as Mia points out, because they have a, a gripe. And they may end up in a situation that's completely disconnected to what it is they're trying to do, which the husband feels some reticence about, right? Yeah, exactly. This was the the people, they had their land and there was something going on with the, 
was it they were diverting the water that's right so everything dried up out at their it was a patch of heaven yep Yep. And, and so they couldn't they couldn't do what they set out there to do. And so they're fighting over this water. But this, again, it serves as sort of this, it kind of activates everybody else um, that, that may or may not be feeling this is the cause that they're upset about. But it's just another thing that they can find where the government is doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. And to serve to draw these people in there. So that that's going to be interesting. I think that was a really interesting way to end this. Yeah, I um, think so too. And somebody was just pardoned. One of the other cases that was referenced in this yep. within the last couple of weeks, right? Yep. He was pardoned by the president, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then we also yes. have a New Hampshire resident who's currently incarcerated for this. Seeking a pardon, yeah. Uh, so Kevin, I have a question for you. Yeah. You were a reporter for a long time. Mm-hmm. I know that you did a lot of different kinds of reporting. You found yourself in all kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. What would you do if you were interviewing somebody and they sat across from you and stared in your eyes and sang the State of Nevada anthem <laughs> while staring at you and not blinking? There is a land that I love the best, fairer than all I can see. Right in the heart of the Golden West, home means Nevada to me. What would you do? I would leave my wife for him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I think it's time to do what we like to do on this show. Let's give the podcast Bundyville, our crime writers on endorsement or not. Give us a thumbs up or thumbs down review of the podcast Bundyville. And briefly, and without spoilers, let us know what you think our listeners should check it out. Laura Bricker, what do you think of Bundyville? I liked it. I thought it was it was very interesting. I loved the way she told the story. You know, she did humanize these people in a way, regardless if you agree or disagree with where they're coming from, in such a way that you really understood more of the background and it was pretty fascinating so I would say listen to it what about you Toby Ball thumbs up or thumbs down for Bundyville from OPB and Long Reads uh, I really liked it thumbs up yeah I'm going to give it a big thumbs up too I really like Bundyville a lot I listened to the whole thing in one day I binged it reminiscent to me in terms of style of 30 for 30's Bikram in terms of the writing style and storytelling style and narration style I learned a lot about something I thought I knew about. Turns out I didn't know much at all. And it wasn't Ted Bundy. It was <laughs> other Bundys. But it was a fascinating look at history, context, legal stuff, politics. Really great framework through which to tell a very relevant American story. Kevin, what do you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down for Bundyville. Yeah, I'm a thumbs up. It's you know more news analysis than it is true crime. But it's still a very compelling look at a story that captured the nation's attention and that that does have uh, you know the possibility of uh, resonating long into the future the yeah. the reporting is solid and um you know the, the the reporter brings an awful lot to the case and, and you know we end up in the end getting a, a pretty good portrait of Cliven Bundy and his family and why they are so angry and you know one thing that might turn those frowns upside down are boxes from FabFitFun. <laughs> Can you imagine? Could you imagine sending those to Bundyville? <laughs> oh, that would be ranch. fantastic. <laughs> hey, everybody could use a FabFitFun box. I mean, we recently got the editor's box, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to tell all about the, the, the service, but uh, it did come with a very nice pillow. It did. That, you know, Mr. Bundy could put under his head, and he might like 
you know, some of the uh, cleaning wipes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was just, there was a, a whole bunch of great things. He can things exfoliate. He can exfoliate. With he can, some of the products. He can really pamper box. himself. Yes. With uh, moisturize. With moisturizer. All full size products, no sample sizes. He can do up his eyes with that eye palette that came with it. Yeah, full size fashion, beauty, home, fitness, and wellness products. You can get them four times a year for just $49.99 a box. It's the seasonal subscription box. The fall box is now on pre sale. Ooh. And they're going to start shipping on August 20th. So you're going to want to you want to uh, reserve your box because the fall box is very highly anticipated. I want the fall box. Can I get one, Kevin? Of course you can. Can I use the code? You know, you're cutting ahead of me here in this. And I, <laughs> it's a very important thing I have to read, Rebecca. Okay. Don't don't get me out of read whack Read the required here. copy. Go. I want right. to hear the code. Okay. All right. Well, the fall box has a total retail value of $275. Ooh. And includes products like the Glam Glow Bubble Sheet Mask, Beauty Blender, Vince Camato Luck Tote, or... The Crown Brush six-piece brush set. Ooh. Now, there was the summer box, and in between there, you can get, sometimes the, the editors put together special boxes. Yeah. We all got the editor's box, like I said. And, Laura, did you have a, a, you know, a great product that you came out of your box that you really loved? I had a couple great products. I got a new really nice bag for my makeup products and cosmetics because it just keeps expanding. Um, I got this awesome loofah that was already like um, it had some sort of lotion slash cleanser in it and it wasn't like a one-time thing. It was like a multi-use so it was great to kind of exfoliate your arms and your legs in the summer. I also got some very nice cream cleanser that was great. I made my son use it after summer camp because he was like super dirty. I'm like use this he doesn't want to use soap. He's a boy. I'm like, use this. It's from the podcast. He's like, ooh. And uh, that was probably the cleanest he's been all summer. So uh, it's good stuff. Yeah, so you want to sign up for the Fab Fit Fun box today. Get your fall box and use our code CRIME to get $10 off your first box. The Fab Fit Fun fall box is in limited supply. And these boxes always sell out. So you go to fabfitfun.com to sign up. And you'll start getting the box for a life well lived. Promo code CRIME will get you $10 off your first box. That's over $275 worth of products for only $39.99. FabFitFun.com. Use the code CRIME. CRIME. I'm going to use that code right after the show. Kevin, what else you got? Well, Rebecca, whether you're out interviewing a potential madman on his ranch, Mm -hmm. covering a court case, Mm -hmm. or maybe just riding around town wanting to look your best, Mm -hmm. can I recommend the beta brand Dress Pant Yoga Pants? You can recommend the beta pant Dress Pant Yoga Pants. The Dress Pant Yoga Pants has all sorts of great dress pant detailing, and they're the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. Dress pant yoga pants are great. Yeah, so I mean, if you haven't seen them, I mean, it's... You could just walk around behind me at the office and watch me, because I have the dress pant yoga pants, and I love them. Yeah. To put it in plain English... They're dress pant yoga pants. (laughs) (laughs) They're yoga pants that look like dress pants. They're super freaking comfortable, and you can wear them to work, and nobody knows that this is really something that you should be wearing on the couch. Four words. All you need to know. Dress, pant, yoga, Yoga pants. pants. Absolutely. I want people to remember that. Dress, that pant, yoga, pants. They're dress, pant, yoga, yoga pants. pants. They have a faux zipper and pockets, a front button, belt loops. You look real sharp. All and the thing dress, pant, yoga, pants should have. Yeah. And you can even get them in boot cut, straight leg, crop, leggings, as well as a variety of colors. Patterns. Seasonal stuff, limited edition colors, things that are released monthly. I have a pinstripe pair. I love them. You have a pinstripe pair of dress pant yoga pants? I love my dress pant yoga pants. <laughs> love That's them. That's great. They look great and they feel great. Visit betabrand.com and use our code CRIME to crime. get $10 off your dress pant yoga pants. <laughs> Millions of women agree these are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. 
The Beta Brand Dress Pan Yoga, yoga Pants. pants. <laughs> That's betabrand.com, B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D.com. Use our code CRIME, crime. to get 20% off your, your dress, dress pant, pant yoga, yoga pants. pants. Now it's time for my favorite part of this podcast. It'll something I like to call the crime Yoga pant of dress pants. <laughs> the crime of the crime week. Of the week. <laughs> There's no law against being into Bigfoot porn, but maybe there ought to be. A candidate in a U.S. House race in Virginia is accused of being a, quote, devotee of Bigfoot erotica. Republican Denver Riggleman posted a photo on Instagram of a Sasquatch with a sensor bar over his junk. Judging by the size of the bar, it must be true what they say about big feet. Ah, uh, but um bump Surprisingly, Riggleman's ties to a white supremacist hasn't received the same attention as his dalliance with mythical creature pornography. Now Rolling Stone, People Magazine, and even the Washington Post are writing articles about the Bigfoot erotica community, including one by our friend Amelia McDonald Perry, who wrote that Rolling Stone article. These articles include blogs, movies, and an upcoming Bigfoot <laughs> upcoming podcast called My Dad Wrote a Bigfoot Porno. What? That's a joke. All right. Uh, not true. <laughs> not true. I wish it were true. Oh, Partners in Crime Media. We're on it. My dad wrote a Bigfoot porno. So here's my question for you, panel. What other mythical creature will cause a political scandal this year? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Uh, truthful politician? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> mythical creature. Um, you know, I'm going to say this year, I every year when you're, you go to like the lakes and do that thing in the summer... You see certain things. I have seen an extraordinary number of inflatable unicorns this year. Wow. So I don't know what's going to happen with the inflatable unicorn, whether there's going to be something that happens on top of it, in it. I, I just think unicorns are going to come into play somehow. All right, Toby Ball, what other mythical creature do you think will cause a political scandal this year, perhaps for the midterms? Uh, well, kind of keeping with the porn theme and then also our earlier discussion of Noah's Ark. I think there's such a thing as dinosaur porn. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there is. And I hesitate to like predict how that will have an impact on our political discourse, but I feel certain that it will in some way. You know, there was, and I'm going to try to remember all the details right, and this is true. There was a New Hampshire U.S. Senate debate in uh, 2002, 2004. And one of the issues that came up at this debate was how one candidate approved something that had something to do with pornography where people step on animals. <laughs> oh, God. Ugh. And I was in the newsroom at the time, and I turned to one producer who was across the room, and we ran to each other and went, what the fuck? <laughs> well, Kevin Flynn, what other mythical creature do you think will cause a political scandal this year? Sorry, kids, but Santa grabs him by the... Oh, I thought you were going to say Ooh. a jackalope jacked off in a oh, bathroom stall or yeah. something like that. Or, or Nessie wants part of Brexit. All right, Laura Bricker, before we wrap up the show, do we have a cat of the week this week? We do. And I'm, I'm breaking from my tradition here because I usually always do a cat that comes from one of our listeners. But I am obsessed with Nathan the Beach Cat. Mm. And... You need to go look up Nathan the Beach Cat. Nathan is a little, it's apparently a girl. I guess uh, it's in Australia. It was a rescue kitten um, from the RSPCA Queensland found in a box on the side of the highway. Now the ultimate beach kitty. This cat 
swims like mm. i've never and there's all these videos of nathan swimming it's the most amazing thing i can't stop watching every day i'm like ooh, a new nathan the beach cat video so <laughs> i mean i'm just telling you better than bigfoot you, porn better than Dr. oh Pimple my god Popper. you've got to see it it's hysterical <laughs> so there you go all right laura bricker if people want to reach out to you with their swimming cats or mouse chasing dogs or birds that can't fly for your selection to be cat or pet of the week how can they reach you on twitter at laura bricker and toby ball if folks want to reach out to you and compliment you on your knowledge of dinosaur pornography how can they find you on twitter at toby ball and h and kevin flynn if folks want to reach out to you and tell you how lucky you are to be married to the likes of me how can they find you on twitter no need to, folks. I already know. But <laughs> you can get me at Kevin P. Flynn. And you can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. Go to our website, crimewriterson.com, and sign up for our newsletter. Or subscribe to Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash crime and use the code CRIME at checkout. When you do, you'll get a free month of Stitcher Premium and you'll get access to our Stitcher Premium exclusive podcast, Married with podcast. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And when you do, you will get access to Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This podcast was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C a.k.a. the closet in our basement where we have barricaded ourselves until all our damn demands have been met. (laughs) On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Hotmail is Microsoft, right? Yeah. Because I have a Hotmail account only for the purposes of the kids' Xbox. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's how I like pay my Xbox bill or whatever. And I only log into it ever. What about Skype, right? Oh, yeah. I guess that's music for Skype, too. So it's Microsoft. But can you imagine being the person who works at Microsoft, this like multinational, multi-billion dollar corporation that has Mm. all these like enterprise products and all this stuff. And it's like, what team do you work on? I work on the Hotmail team. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but I'm hoping to work my way up (laughs) to Clippy. Oh, dear. Oh, my God. 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 Ah, you can't record the show like that. What's wrong? <laughs> oh, no. Is Kevin stripping? Kevin. I'm just going to say this. Have you ever seen Winnie the Pooh? <laughs> nice. Sweater, no pants. Oh, dear. Get that 4G, get that 4G camera going. Oh, yeah, turn the camera on. <laughs> <laughs> then he'll get then he'll get some questions. He'll get some interaction. <laughs> Why are you laughing so hard? I just, let me just put it this way. Um, I've been sitting like this for five minutes, you know. Okay, so without getting too graphic, <laughs> usually don't. usually when you see it. the <laughs> those <laughs> they're hanging down. <laughs> They're not <laughs> propped up on a pillow. They're not sitting. Oh they're not sitting ah. on a chair. Ah. Resting Wait, comfortably. Re- resting comfortably. And it's just a whole different perspective that 
Oh my! Yeah. I can't. You need where, to, where are you sitting exactly? He's sitting on the. He's sitting on the stool in the studio, and I looked over at him, and I'm like, "Oh!" I saw him take off his jeans, and sometimes he'll sit there in his boxer shorts where we record. So he took off his jeans, and we were just chatting, and I looked down, and there's nothing there except those. <laughs> and I thought the clippy was going to be the highlight. Oh God! It might. I be. know you were reacting quite strongly to the clippy comment. It was very because oh. the clippy joke was a very good. How did you make that joke while you were sitting there with nothing on your? Wait, he's got no underwear on. Wait he a minute. He took what? off his yeah, underwear. He, he was hanging I... brain. <laughs> he's on. sitting on the stool in our studio with his oh. and. Just sitting on the stool with him. Oh, it looks like a whole separate person. How did you not get that he wasn't wearing any underwear? Lark? Well, because I was thinking that maybe he was wearing like boxer shorts and he was sitting in a weird position. No, nope, it's just or all out. Winnie the Pooh does not wear boxer shorts. <laughs> it's, a, it's all out. Although Winnie the Pooh does not have genitalia either. He does have hair down there, though. He does have hair. Oh, dear God. Miss Jones Baking Company is proud to present the world's first line of microwavable organic desserts in a cup. Our family loves them, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Just add water and microwave for 30 seconds to get a fresh baked cake that's fewer than 200 calories. Or try their award-winning fudgy brownie in a cup and make a warm brownie sundae in less than a minute. Ready to taste the magic in a cup? Use code CRIME at MissJones.co to get two free desserts in a cup with any online purchase. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.